This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. This particular message has been sort of formed in me over the past uh, couple months. And it's not that I can't say it hasn't been forming in me over the past 52 years, because that would probably be a more accurate way of saying it. There come certain junctures of your spiritual growth and development where you get the aha, and you see something more clearly, and you recognize certain points of hindrance in your life that sometimes they're cultural. Sometimes they're even Christian cultural, where you have good intentions that are expressed uh, in and through, whether it's parenting or whether it's church leadership, that have a tendency to cause you to come to conclusions, maybe too hastily, in regards to how God interacts with us. And so a fresh understanding of the word as applied to uh, certain dimensions of our life can be very, very helpful. When I'm training my kids, I recognize that I can try something out. Even though I know the gospel truth, I can raise the standard of expectation and say, this is how I expect you to live. And ironically, what I'm doing is I'm giving them a standard that I know that they actually can't perform yet. But I raise the standard so as to show them a discrepancy and to acquaint them with the fact that they need a savior to make up the gap. We'll call that the grace gap. But you can do that as a parent in a way that actually doesn't help your child recognize they need a grace gap. And what they end up with is a condemnation gap. And do you guys understand what I mean by that? In other words, you could inspire your child to say, you see this, this is how God wants you to live, but look where you are. And so instead of that, inspiring them to call on a Savior to say, oh, but God makes up the difference. Oh, but God forgives me for the lack and then gives me grace to grow in grace to actually begin to live that way. And that's Gospel 101. However, it doesn't always interpret as Gospel 101 to our souls. We see the gap and what we see is failure. And when that difference and that falling short is always emphasized in parenting or in the church. It has a tendency to create a crushing weight on the believer as opposed to an inspiration to show them what God desires to do in their life. And so this message is going to creatively deal with what I just described in a way that hopefully begins to bring a repair to some of you that have been under the crushing weight of condemnation while others have been trying to inspire you to live in a more grand way. Because it is true that God wants us to grow in grace, and he wants us to express his his beauty, his power, his holiness in and through our behavior. And yet if we think that is going to be derived from our own effort, we're going to fall short for the rest of our life. There is another one who must put in the effort, and that is the Holy Spirit who wants to move in and actually exert his power in us to raise us up to live at a higher level than we ever could as humans. I'm looking at something on the screen that doesn't look like my keynote. Uh, It's just five seconds? Okay. So I need to buy five seconds, guys. Uh, I don't know what I should say for five seconds other than talk about the fact that I need to buy five seconds. And now I've bought five seconds and there it is. Good job. That was, that was really good, uh, James. You know, how I, yeah. Uh, so two-handed Christianity. This harkens back to a message I gave before Ellerslie. It, Mike, do you remember that big uh, notebook full of messages that you, you, I gave you, what was that, 14, 15 years ago? So I used to have a small group gathering in uh, we called it the upper room, was our studio uh, room, and we would have you know, maybe 10 people in there, and I would go through these like two to three hour messages. I would just unpack truth at a very, very deep level. And I gave a message called Two Hands. 
And I don't know that I've given this illustration since then. I'm not positive, but one thing I remember about that message is it didn't record properly. And so I always remember it was one of the most significant things because it was an announcement at the same time of little Harper Grace uh, coming home. And so it was a very, very significant statement that I was making. The message was very, very personal. And then it didn't record properly. And that's happened various times over the years where something significant happens and then the tech person says, yeah, it didn't capture. It's like, hmm. And I've learned to just rejoice in that and trust God. But I almost feel like this is something connected to that. All these years later, I I do feel that something significant lies in this. And so I'm calling it something similar, right? Uh, And that's two-handed Christianity. And you'll notice that there's a character at the bottom of the graphic that is in desperate need of being rescued. And then there's two hands that are reaching down to help. And in this picture, I think it's appropriate to say, you know, just picture those two hands from above as being the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that one hand that is, you know, reaching out for for help, of course, is us. And what God wants to do is he wants to train us how to participate in his rescue work, that he wants to actually set our hands free to work in the operation of service and rescue. Most of us are taking all of our strength, you know, we could call our handedness, and we're using it to sort of cling and hold on for dear life so that we ourselves are not submerged in the challenges of life. And God wants to strengthen us in such a way where our hands are freed so that we can focus on others and serve them. So I'm going to call this the three zones of idiocy. I'm sure that every single one of us will be familiar with these three zones as we progress. But when sin encroaches, so sin makes its move on our life. There's a temptation, there's a bait. And when it does, when it's first making its move, when it's first knocking or you know, uh, surreptitiously trying to sneak in through a back window, we have clarity. Our brain should be sharp, right? We, we should be able to see straight. And yet, as we allow sin into our life, as we agree with it, and it's like, oh yeah, come on in. Have you noticed that you become very foggy-brained? And there's this ever-increasing dumbness that begins to overcome the soul when it allows sin to increase in your lives. So I'll give you sort of a picture for this. So you'll notice the numbers seem somewhat backward, but that's going to be a part of this story. I have, if you're hearing this via podcast, I have a red block with a number three on it, a blue block with a number two on it, or a green block with a number one on it. And when sin is making its move, that's like the arrow on the far left there, you're clear-minded, and yet you're going to deliberately make a choice in a direction you shouldn't. And what's going to happen is you're going to become immediately foggy-brained. You have so many justifications of why this is a good idea to participate in this. It's like, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, come on, God forgives these things. And so I'm going to call that foggy brain. But as sin begins to continue and it works its full course, I don't know another word for it other than, or another phrase for it is dumb as a rock. Have you ever gotten, you know, past the green block where you're like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. And you can't see it in the midst of the fog, but you see it the moment sort of the book or the chapter closes. And you recognize and you awaken from your stupor and the devil is there to jump on your back and try and grind your nose into the dirt and say, you are an idiot. And it's sort of hard to argue. You sort of are an idiot, right? And that is the progression of sin in how it works within us. Now, you'll notice I gave different colors there because those are going to play into my message. And the fact that I gave the number one, the dumb as a rock, a green color. Some of you are like, that's a little gracious, Eric, to give that a green color. That should be black, black all through and not green. And I, you know, I totally, totally get what you're, what you're thinking there, but that's, that's part of my message. So I'm going to take these three zones, and I don't know how this is going to translate into a podcast, like how someone is going to possibly understand what this is without seeing my cool graphics that I have on the screen. But this is going to be the opposite of what any of us would, by default, think. And I'm going to call it three zones of victory. Okay, now, if you were to just imagine those three zones that I put up before, you know, the red one, the blue one, and the green one, and if you imagine me calling that victory, 
Uh, if, you, if you were to look at the blue or the green block, you would say, Eric, I, I think you're missing something. But the three zones of victory when sin encroaches. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out an idea for you to begin to chew on. And that is the devil wants to convince you that anything but the red block, there is no victory. There is no hope of victory. You have blown it, and you need to now be under the weight of condemnation, under the boot of despair for a good period of your life until you can finally work up enough courage to you know, come back to God and you know, seek a little forgiveness. So number, what you're going to see is the same graphics, and you see the same encroachment of sin. The red block is like the champion block. It's the hero block. It's the one that every good Christian is going to be trained for. When I'm training up my kids, I'm training them to function in the red block. When I'm training you as a church, I'm training you to function in the red block territory. Sin comes and you give it a stiff arm. You break its nose. You laugh in its face. You hold up the shield of faith and you repel the fiery arrows. Christianity. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. The problem is not every one of us functions in that way or yet understands how to function in that way, which is why I'm giving this message. Because what I could do is I could create the picture of maturity, the picture of the way it ought to be. And then if you fall anywhere but in that zone, you're struggling trying to figure out what you have now. I mean, because you obviously have a rather paltry version of Christianity if you're not given a stiff arm to the face of that enemy when he comes in and tries to take a bite out of your soul. Oh no, not on my watch. You see, what I want to groom you for, what I want to groom my children for, anyone I disciple, I want to train them how to stand strong against the bait of the enemy. I want to teach them how to build upon a rock so that when winds and rains beat against their house, they will not crumble. They will not falter. They will not fall. I want to teach them how to stand in the armor of God, to remain in the refuge, to remain abiding. Because if you stand in Christ, the enemy has no advantage over you. You have all the advantage because greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. If God be for you, who can stand against you? No weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. Christianity, that's how it works. That's the way it's always worked. That's Paul's gospel. And yet I'm going to say that there's another zone of victory. You just may not see it as a zone of victory. And it's not that I'm encouraging it. It's not that I'm encouraging immature Christianity. It's like, go immature Christianity. Let's not get so mature that we're like just bopping the devil in the nose. Let's be weaker. I'm not encouraging it. It's just that some people are weaker. And if they're weaker, they need to know that there's victory there. They need to know that when they are weak, God's strength is made perfect in and through that. They need to have hope in their challenge as opposed to feel defeated in it. I'm going to call this second block interrupted. So the first one is a stiff arm to the nose of the enemy. I mean, he comes away with a, the enemy comes away with a bloody nose. And we're like, yeah, that was great. That's good old-fashioned Christianity. This next one is sort of the Jonah model. Now, if I were to say, is Jonah a hero? That's a tough one to answer if you know the story. I mean, he... Okay, he, he sort of ended up doing the right thing. I mean, the greatest revival in all of human history came about as a, as a result of his ministry. Yeah, you see God's grace come out of something that started with disobedience. And so what we see is a progression where Jonah knows what he ought to do, but ends up getting on a ship to go to Tarshish. And then his plan to disobey is interrupted. And he ends up in a state of obedience, even though you'll have to admit a little bit reluctant obedience. Not the greatest picture, right? And yet you're going to see a conversion of something into a great picture of grace. I'm going to call that an interruption. Very few Christians have ever been taught how to interrupt the downward spiral of sin. Once it starts, most of the time they just give up. It's like, yeah, there's nothing I can do. However, as you're growing in grace, you begin to recognize that I don't need to keep going. As one Christian leader once said to me, the moment, Eric, you realize that you're wrong, just imagine that a clock starts ticking. And the measure from the point when you know you're wrong to when you admit you're wrong is your measurement of humility. Humility. 
And so when you recognize that you got on a ship to Tarshish, how long until you realize that you need to repent and change direction? There is a grace that is available to us as the body of Christ that even though we have disobeyed, we can actually jump overboard and we can acknowledge I am in the wrong. And we can get the cool splash of water upon our soul to awaken us from our downward spiral and our stupor. And this is grace at work. This is a victory. And even though you could say, but look, I made the mistake in the first place. I got on the ship to Tarshish. Do you not realize that the grace of God has intervened in your life and that this is a victory for you to repent right now? If you will take the grace that is being offered to you and you will stop the downward spiral and you will interrupt it in agreement with God, that is victory. As opposed to, it's like, oh, I've already blown the victory. See, if you only look at the first block as the only place to get victory, what happens when you slide past the first block? Well, you might as well fall to pieces because there's no hope in between. Actually, there's grace in between. At any juncture in your life, when you recognize that you're wrong, you have grace to stop that downward progression. You have grace to repent. You have grace to flee from that temptation. You have grace to leave the ship to Tarshish and jump in the cold water. Yeah, there might be a fish waiting there that brings you where you're supposed to go. This is the grace of God at work, and as a result, I'm going to call it a place of victory. And the next one is a place that most of us don't like to talk about. It's the place where you didn't stop it. You knew you were doing wrong, but then you justified it, and then you justified it again. You got really dumb. And you're actually doing something that is exact opposite of everything you've promised yourself you would never do, and maybe even promised others you'd never do. And there you are. Oh, no, guys. I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that zone, but... It doesn't take long in one of these human bodies to at least have been there a few times. This is the breakdown of what sin does to us when we don't have armor on, when we don't understand how to apply the grace of God. And as I describe this, you're going to recognize this is how a young believer struggles because they're in an infantile season not recognizing how to appropriate the weapons of warfare that are mighty. They're not recognizing how to stick on armor so that they can stem the tide. But I'm going to call this, this green block here, a place of victory. Not because I want to encourage you ever to go there, but because when you do go there, God's grace is there in abundance. And he is desiring to mercy you. Now, I'm, I'm giving, you know, repelled, interrupted, and you are now mercied. You are drenched with mercy in that situation. The devil doesn't want you to understand this, and here's what's funny is it's really hard for us as parents to actually allow you to know this, or for Christian leadership to actually let you know this, that God's mercy is going to be there for you, because we don't want you to get it in your head that that's a good place to go. So we just want to act like, well, if you ever go there, bad things could happen, which is true. However, the grace of God is not absent in that dark place. There is a restorative mercy that God is desirous to give you in that place. Now, I don't know if you guys can follow through on why a parent or a pastor would hesitate to give too much ground and too much voice to that green block down there. Because every decision you're making is wrong to end up in that green block. It's disobedience. It's sin. It's sin getting its way in your life. But God wins, and his mercy triumphs over judgment, which means if you ever find yourself in that green block territory, you are in a territory that God possesses, and his grace is sufficient in that zone to restore you and to rekindle intimacy, and to break down all the enemies' entrapments, and to set you free. It's a place of victory. It's not a place I want to instruct you to go. It's not a place I want to teach my children to go. But if you find yourself there, find the victory in it. So the first block, I'm going to call it stopping it at the door. 
It knocks and you slam the door in its face. No, is the answer. Sin will not gain any foothold in my life. It will not gain any advance point in my life. There is a reason why I would want to train you to do this. And as we unpack this message, you'll recognize this is the signal of a maturing faith. You see, as you're growing in grace, you're growing in your ability to stop the forward progression of sin. And so this is a great thing to teach, but what I'm showing you in this message is that it's not the only thing I should teach. If I only teach this, and you don't find this in your actions today, I want you to know that the grace of God is not absent in your life or is now no longer available to you. And when you respond in the blue or the green block to the grace of God, did you know that that is like a building block to move you to the red block? That's how God does it. He turns what the enemy means to harm us into an advantage and a growth point in our spiritual life. Number two, interrupting the downward spiral. This was that Jonah model. You jump on the ship to Tarshish and then you're like, you know what, this is my fault. I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm going overboard. We're changing direction here. And then three, this is sort of a, it's almost like too grand of a title for something that we're all like, no, 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 never go there. And that's overwhelmed with mercy. If any of you have ever visited the green block, which like I said, I'm not going to ever encourage you to visit. But if you ever have visited that green block and you have gotten God's heart towards you in that state, you'll recognize that God will overwhelm you with his mercy. So to be able to explain this, this flow, I need to explain something known as grace. Now, if you've gone through Ellerslie Discipleship Training, you understand grace, probably better than most people out there because we spend a lot of time dealing with it. But many people look at grace as sort of like God overlooking our sin. And it's, it's his mercy. Well, but there's already a word for mercy. It's called mercy. But grace is power. It's power to do. It's power to do what? It's power to do that which God would have you do. And you don't have the ability. So it's God working on your behalf. How are you saved? By grace. God working on your behalf, accomplishing something for you that you could not accomplish on your own. How do you live your Christian life? By grace. God working for you to accomplish something on your behalf that you could not accomplish on your own. That's grace. And you need it. You need it for salvation. You need it for living out the Christian life. You need it. Without it, you cannot function. You, you would not be able to succeed. We are products of grace, which means it wasn't our working. And guess what? Our Christian ex example is not a product of our doing. Oh, okay, God, you did that work. Now it's up to me to do the rest. Every bit of our Christian Example, if we are going to give a showcase of Jesus Christ, it's because God is working on our behalf. He's the one accomplishing it. So introducing grace, I have a subline underneath. It's the power of God to save. When you hear about salvation, most of you think about heaven. It's like, oh yeah, and one day when I die, then I'll go to heaven. And that's, I'm going to call it that capital S salvation. But there's a lowercase s salvation that is right now, today. And that's when sin comes knocking on the door. You see, you have been given a grace to actually respond to the encroachment of the enemy upon your life. You need to be saved. When that temptation comes to you, what do you need? To be saved. So what do you need to be saved? You need grace. You need God to work within you, through you, to respond, to think clearly, and to apprehend his truth and to give the stiff arm to the devil. That's what Jesus is doing in the, in the wilderness. When he is being tempted in the wilderness, he is actually showcasing the life of grace where he is taking the word of God, he's clear-minded, and he's shoving it back in the devil's face. And we're like, go Jesus! And he's showing a mature picture of what he desires to grow us up unto. But if we're not there and we're in the process of being strengthened, it's sort of like looking at a little toddler and going, hey, I want you to run a mile in five minutes. 
That's what every human is designed to do. And that poor little toddler could be like, my legs, my physiology isn't yet ready to produce such a demonstration of maturity. And as a parent, I have a grace for my child when they're learning to walk. In fact, I call it cute. A toddle to almost, if not every single one of us in here, is a precious thing to us. It's not a negative thing, but when it's in our spiritual life, we have a tendency as the church to remove the cute from it and say, that's just bad. But we are in need of a season of growth and maturity. It's called sanctification, which isn't instant. It is a process of being perfected. We are clothed in the work of Jesus, which is perfect. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which is perfect righteousness. And that's what gives us access unto the Father. But underneath that clothing is a very real maturing process. It's infant to toddler, toddler to little child, child to young adult, young adult to mature. And this is the process that God works in all of us. And we need grace for the toddler season when we can't run as we ought to run. God makes up the difference. But a mature adult needs less of the saving, stabilizing grace, and they use their grace to actually thwart the devil. They are gaining more strength to serve. It's like the difference between not having any hands or using your hands to cling to your salvation and being able to take those same hands and use them to help others. So you're going to notice that each of these zones takes grace. To be able to give a stiff arm to the devil, what does it demand? Grace. To be able to interrupt the downward spiral of our life and to repent, even in the midst of the fog bank, to say, Jesus is worth it, and I am not going in this direction again. And to arrest that downward spiral takes something, and it's not something you possess. It's something that comes to you from heaven, and it's called grace. And when you are under the boot of the enemy and the devil's cackling with his evil cackle, what do you need to be able to stand up and to shove the devil off and to say, I am in Christ, purchased by his blood, cleansed and washed by his blood? And the enemy says, you're nothing but a pile of junk. Look at you. God wouldn't want you. And you have the ability, because of the grace of God, to actually appropriate the truth of his mercy even in that moment. And guess what that takes? Grace. So no matter which block you're at, you need grace right now. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul is talking about grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Wow, that's quite a compliment to grace considering Paul was quite the character, right? So Paul is saying he is what he is because of the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What labored in and through Paul more abundantly than they all? It was the grace of God. It's that which was working on Paul's behalf to accomplish the working that we see that Paul accomplished. He was over all the churches. I mean, this guy was quite a special character. And what made him so special? Grace. And if I could say it this way, appropriated, activated grace that was utilized. You could have armor, you could have a sword, you could have a shield, that doesn't mean you're using it. God could give you grace, but you may not use it. You're supposed to clothe yourself in that armor, you're supposed to swing that sword, you're supposed to hold up the shield of faith. And that's what Paul was doing. So when you receive grace, whether it's in the red block, the blue block, or the green block, you need to use that grace. Our job in this whole schematic isn't to produce grace, it's to receive grace. It's to use it. If God is handing you armor, what should you do? What is your job? You didn't weld the armor. You're not the one that invented the armor. You didn't design the armor. You wear the armor. To do that, you have to receive it. At every juncture in this, if you are down under the enemy's boot and Jesus whispers to you, stand up. You have my mercy. It is new right now towards you. I love you. You are my child. You are not designed to be subservient to this power of sin. Rise up knowing that I am with you. I've redeemed you. What do you need to rise up? 
You need to receive his mercy, his grace. You need to accept the fact that he loves you even though you just committed that crime. Our God knew our weakness when he came to this earth. He's not newly discovering it when he sees us acting like idiots. It's like, what? I thought I saved someone that was perfect. When you have a child, you don't expect your child to be perfect. You know that they're an imperfect mess. And they, they are growing and they are learning. If you gave your, your newborn infant a quiz on calculus, you would find that they wouldn't do very well on that quiz. It's like, what are, what's wrong with you? It's because they have not developed and matured through a process, precept upon precept upon precept, to actually be able to understand those things. And the same is true with appropriating grace. God knows where you're at. And he gives you truth to match the circumstance and the situation. Your job, whether you're in a green block or a red block, is to use that grace. Grace. It's the power of God to do, to act, to respond just as one ought to respond. Now what's interesting is I could say, in the red block, what is the grace training you to do? To say no to the encroachment of the enemy. To love your enemies to actually respond in a way that is marked by integrity and love in every circumstance. He gives you grace for that. What would the grace be? What would the proper response be if you find yourself on a ship to Tarshish and God convicts you and you awaken to the reality of your sinfulness and your disobedience? What would grace be to you in that? How would you respond properly? You would halt your forward progression towards Tarshish and you would jump overboard to say, I'm headed to Nineveh. And how does the grace of God respond properly inside of you when you are down under the foot of the enemy and he's cackling his, you know, his wicked laughter over you? You would appropriate the truth of God's forgiveness and his mercy and that he is a redemptive God who takes what the enemy is meant to harm you and turns it to good. That's what you would appropriate. And it's grace in each of those circumstances for you to respond in your circumstances just as you ought. So as I am saying, I have that three block picture again. With that red block, you have grace to say no. But what if you don't say no? Well, now you have grace to intervene and to say, okay, I've taken some steps in the wrong direction. I'm a little blurry brained right now, but I am stopping that right now. That ceases at this moment. And what if you don't stop it at that moment? I'm going to call it, you have grace to recover a strength position. The enemy will say that you are ruined. And God will say, I will take this supposed ruin, this ash, and I will bring beauty out of it. I will take this rottenness, because God's not going to argue that it's not rotten, that it's not ugly, that it's not dark. It is. But I will take it and use it for your advancement if you will turn to me right now. If you will hand it back to me instead of holding on to it and allowing the enemy to curdle inside of you and to bring condemnation over your life, you trust me and you receive my mercy right now, I will use this to make you stronger. Now I'm going to change the wording on that final one. And I'm going to say, it's not just grace to say no to the encroachment of sin. It's not just grace to intervene. It's grace to accept mercy. Now, I know that that sounds like it would be pretty easy to do. Grace to accept mercy. How hard would that be? You tell me. You know how hard it is. If any of you have ever been in that green block and you have done something that you know is just plain dumb, it is really hard to accept mercy. You feel like you want to kick yourself a few more times. I mean, hurt yourself somehow. You need to pay the penalty. And that's where God's gospel needs to come in and intervene in your soul and says, I paid it. But God, I, can't, I don't know that I can accept that you paid for this. You, you paid for all my other junk before this. I don't feel like it's right for you to pay for this too. But for you to accept his mercy is the grace that he's given you. The way we honor him, get this guys, the way we honor our God in that green block is to let him give us mercy. That's how we honor him. I know you're just trying to honor him. I get that. 
But the way you honor him is by receiving that mercy. Amazing grace. Now, you've seen these different blocks. Now, I should have put it 3 two, one uh, because that would actually count uh, better. But the reason I did it as 3 two, one is because I'm showing growth. The problem is I have it backwards here, you know, when I numbered it. But it should be like 3 two, one on the screen. Grace is given to defy sin. It's true, guys. You read the New Testament, and that's what Paul is teaching us. That we are no longer under the thumb of sin. We have been given grace to stiff arm it to say no. Number two, grace is given to get back up and back into the race. This is that intervention side. Now there's this great picture in the life of Eric Little. I feel like I'm bonded with Eric Little at some level. I mean, there has to be some relationship, don't you think? Eric Little, the famous runner, he won the Olympic gold, right? And Eric Ludi. Uh, you know, there, there's just some parallel there, I hope. Uh, but Eric Little is in a race, it wasn't the Olympics, and he, they start out the race, and he's the favored runner. He's possibly the best runner in all of Great Britain at the time. And at the very beginning, he gets tripped and falls off the racetrack and onto the middle lawn. And uh, let's just be honest, guys. If you ever trip at the beginning of a race when you're running, I don't know, it's like a 400 meter, there's just no way <laughs> you're going to win it. So you might as well just give up, like just cry over your, you know, your, your disaster and just sort of lay there and feel sorry for yourself. But this, this grace that we see in and through that picture of Eric Little immediately springing up, and he is like 20 feet behind, 20 paces already behind. I and mean, this is a big loss when people are running full speed. With the top runners in Great Britain, he is running against the best, and he's already 20 paces behind. And he literally turns on the afterburners, Grace, right there. I don't know what afterburners you need, but when you're in that process where you get tripped and you recognize, instead of just allowing the devil to say, stay put, you get up and pull an Eric Little. Turn on the afterburners because you have them. It's called Grace. He wins the race. One of the most extraordinary race victories you could ever imagine, the 400 meters, he wins it after being tripped. Oh, that's the story of your life right there. So if you can run the race and just win it, praise God. That's, that's the first option, right? But if you get tripped along the way, get up. You have grace to win this race. And three, grace is given when sin abounds in order to recover all the enemy has stolen and turn the whole matter into a triumph. When the enemy gets away with his theft, God's grace wants to intervene. When he burns down and you have a big pile of ash in your life, God's grace wants to intervene. He says, I want to bring beauty out of that. God, what can you do with this? This is just a bunch of mistake here. There's nothing redeeming in this. Let me have that ash and I will bring beauty out of it. You see, when sin abounds, something else abounds more. Do you guys remember what it is? It's called grace. When sin increases, grace increases even more. So when sin increases in your life, one thing you can know is that God's grace is greater at every juncture which means if you turn to it, it will silence the enemy's attempts. Romans 5.20b, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans 6.1, that's at the end of uh, Romans 5, and then Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall he who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, this is the danger, and we feel it as parents, and we feel it as pastors, that if we actually let you know about the green block, and we let you know about the grace of God and his mercy, that you'll say, well, why don't I just keep on sinning? Because his grace abounds to me in that situation. And Paul is taking the risk, which is why we should all as parents and as pastors take the risk too. Paul's saying, God's grace is there in that green block, in that circumstance, grace abounds. 
And then Paul answers the very question that's in all of our heads. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin then? That this grace could abound. You're missing the whole point. God is wanting to grow you up and mature you, not keep you in this infantile state. But if you find yourself in the green block, yes, his grace will be present. But don't stay in the green block. So this week I was doing some discipleship in my home and it sounded very similar to Ellerslie. I was talking about, imagine that this is, I, I was using our back porch, but this is what I do when I'm here at Ellerslie. Imagine this is my body, this room. And it's a factory and it produces fruit. It was designed to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's not. It's producing some rancid yuck called the fruit of the flesh. Something's wrong in this body known as Eric Ludi. And there's this like office back here, it's glassed in. And inside the office, it's my office, right? You know, because the life is called Eric Ludi, right? So who would be in this office but me? And there's a seat in there. It's a nice leather swivel chair. And it goes up and down. Uh, and it's really cool. However, it wasn't designed for me. You know whose seat this is? It's the creator of this body. It's like a throne, and I shouldn't be sitting on a king's throne. This is my king's throne. And guess what my problem is in this body? It's that I have taken a seat that doesn't belong to me. I'm going to call that sin. The result of sin, me sitting in God's seat, is that all my machines are producing yuck, or we could call them sins. The result of me sitting here is that I'm producing sins. When we think of the work of Jesus in our life, we think of him cleaning up the mess of what's coming out of this factory. We're like, oh good, did you wash that up too? Yeah, I have a pile back there too, if you could clean that up. And we fail to realize that actually Jesus' main objective is to get you out of that seat. Why? Because the moment you're out of that seat, these machines can start working and producing fruit. The Holy Spirit can move into this place and dwell. And he can begin to use these machines, these, they're called members of the body, to actually produce fruit that resembles him. But there we still sit. You see, when Jesus sets us free, he doesn't just remove our problem, which we could call the flesh, that power of sin, that principle of sin that is over this body, but he also removes the super glue on our rear end that is keeping us there. How about the ropes that are tying us to the chair? How about the gag that is over our mouth? All of it disappears the moment he comes into our life. But some of us still remain there. He comes into the glass office and says, step down. And we still, we read a book about how we're supposed to stay in the seat today. I mean, that's like most of modern Christianity trying to tell us how it's okay if we stay in the seat but everything about working Christianity is getting off of the seat and bending your knee and saying, Lord, take it. It belongs to you. You see, you have been set free. Did you know that? Now, most of us have heard that before, but what we think that means is we've been set free to keep going to the green block. Oh yeah, I'm free. I can go to the green block anytime I want. And we're failing to understand the work of grace when we do that which is why parents and pastors struggle to know how to communicate about the green block lest someone get the wrong idea about liberty, that we're free to just enjoy our, the flesh and enjoy sin instead of that we were set free from it so that we didn't need to go to the green block anymore. We have been set free to actually live in obedience, to do something with this body that resembles heaven. So giving up the seat, we are now free to obey. You see, before when you were sitting in that seat, you couldn't obey. You may have known what obedience was and your parents said, this is how you ought to live. And yet you couldn't live that way. But now you are actually free to obey. Let me give another way of saying it. You are now free to reveal Jesus. You see, your body was designed to reveal Jesus, but when you are seated there in that seat that belongs to him, you can't reveal Jesus. You're revealing selfishness. That's all over the world. We don't need another sighting of that. But when Jesus takes the seat, you now are set free to reveal him. So here we get to our title, 
two-handed Christianity. So there's an illustration that was given in the Welsh Revival that I don't know if I've shared it here. I probably have somewhere along the line, like way back in the days of Ellerslie. But I used to share it a lot because it was so powerful in my mind. And then I was thinking, as I was putting this message together, it's like, yeah, well, I haven't shared that in a long time. And it was even good for me to sort of rekindle the memories. But you'll understand where my title comes from. So the way that they would oftentimes share the gospel is they would describe someone as being in the vast ocean, you know, those big high waves. And a lot of times we are living in a lost state, but we don't realize we're lost. We're in frigid cold ocean water and we're going to drown, but we don't know it. But when the grace of God and the spirit of God works upon us, what he first of all does is awakens us to our desperation and our need because he loves us. And so we'll start choking down water. We'll start to feel like, whoa, I'm sinking. I'm, whoa, this water's cold. And we're awakening to the fact that there's, there's a lostness here. I need to be saved. And so you're reaching out and there's some other guy floating, you know, with his little uh, piece of wood, his driftwood. And you're like trying to, you know, have him keep you up. But all you do is drown him when you do it. You see, no man can save you. Your driftwood can't save you from these crashing waves. This frigid cold, you, hypothermia is setting in. You're not going to make it. And then somehow the message of the truth gets to you. Yes, you are dying. But there is a ship on these high seas that has like a sonar ability that when you call upon the name of Jesus, he can find you and rescue you. Just call. Just call on Jesus and he will come and he will rescue you. Jesus! Whew. The ship is there. And so you grip the side of the ship and you are saved. You are no longer going to drown. You have been spared the, the, the sinking, the hypothermia. Uh, you are on the side of the ship. You are clinging for dear life because you know that is your only source of salvation. Many of us as believers live our entire Christianity clinging to the side of a ship. What are we doing with our hands? We're clinging for dear life lest we sink. What does Jesus desire to do? He desires to not just give us the grace of the rescue ship, but he desires to bring us into the ship. Why would he want to do that? Because this is a rescue ship. And you know what he desires to do? He desires to have you learn how to lean over the edge and bring those that are in the water into the ship. What if every one of us is clinging to the side of the ship and no one is actually in the ship functioning the way Christ intended us to function. He doesn't desire us just to cling to the side of a ship for the rest of our life. That's green block territory. Yes, the ship is there for you. Yes, he wants you to grab a hold of it. Yes, his grace is sufficient for you in this situation. But his grace wants to elevate your game. He wants to lift you out of the chilly waters. He wants to set these hands free so that you're not just using all of the grace on yourself but so that you could spend the grace to rescue others. Relinquishing the grip. This grip is a very symbolic thing. Because if you think about it, say there's a ship coming to rescue you, but you're holding on to something in your own life. And usually I liken it to a handful of pebbles. So if I came up to you with a handful of pebbles, I said, how much do you want to pay me for this? There's some very valuable pebbles. I would find probably pretty soon, is, and so would you, if you went door to door through the neighborhood, it's like, so how much do you want, uh, for, how much will you give me for this? You know, $10? They go, no, I'm not going to give you $10. Uh, $5? No, I'm not going to give you $5. $1? No, I'm not going to give you $1. One penny? No. And, th and then they say something like, I'll, you give me $10 and I'll take them off your hands, right? They're worthless. And yet we cling to these aspects of our life as if they are our life. And Jesus says, you can't even grab the ship unless you repent and let go of that which is in your hand. You see, we are clinging to things of this earth that are empty, that are hollow, and they are claiming this precious grip. And the first thing we must do is let go of our life so that we can cling to the ship. But then God wants to elevate us and by his grace lift us into the ship and have these hands set free so that we can use this grip to actually rescue others. 
So giving up that which is useless to gain that which is priceless. So I have these three blocks on the screen. The red block is what I'm going to call two-handed Christianity. You see, this is what we're growing up to have, is to have two hands that are ready to rescue. Because we're no longer just clinging for dear life, trying to hold on. We know we are safely in the ship. We rest secure in our identity in Christ. So we now can turn outward. Now, this I'm calling the second block one-handed Christianity. I don't know if that really is the best way to describe it. But it's sort of like the guy hanging onto the ship with one hand and trying to pull someone in with the other. It's an imperfect, uh, unfinished, not fully matured version of what God desires us to be. But guess what? It's better than having both hands being used and tied up. It's just a process. And many of us could recognize one-handed Christianity as probably a pretty good description of our own. And the green block, I'm going to call needy Christianity. You see, when we stay in that zone of constantly just needing to be blessed with the mercy and overwhelmed with the flood of his grace in our failures, it's not that he doesn't delight to use that as a point of victory and a point of growth for us, but he's built us for something more than that. He desires to elevate our game and to move us out of that green block territory, which is just needy. You need everyone counseling you. You need everyone spending their energies and their grace on you. You're the one in the water needing to be pulled out. And by the way, that's what we have a delight as the, as the body of Christ to do. So it's not like you're a pain in the neck for us. It's just that we want growth. Jesus desires us to be in the boat with two hands freed and functioning to rescue others. So let's look at uh, the first block, the green block down there. And this, on this screen, it says grace to rescue me. That's what the grace is being spent on. It's rescuing you. The second one is grace to not be a menace to myself or others. Praise God, what a great advancement that is. In other words, I'm no longer harming my life and I'm no longer harming those around me, but I'm also not really helping. And that's where the red block comes in. It's grace to rescue others. So when I say the red block is what we train, that's what we esteem, that's what we're after. It doesn't mean that's where we all are. But I don't want to raise the bar and cast a vision of something grand and then have you feel condemnation because you're not there. What I want you to receive is grace for whatever gap there is between you and that red block and where you're at right now. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Now this is an altered one to match our Welsh revival picture. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in the cold water that grace may continue to rescue us in our needy condition? Certainly not. How shall we who have been freed from the frigid water live any longer in it? Why, why would I go jumping off the ship into the cold water and flap around any? Why would I do that? God has given me grace so that I don't need to go back into that cold water, but I can rescue others out of it. Certainly not is the answer. But what if you blow it? Our God is merciful. 1 John 2.1. Now it's funny because 1 John is arguably probably one of the toughest books in the Bible when you are feeling like you're in the green block and the enemy will start quoting 1 John. It's, it's a really funny thing. The enemy only quotes the Bible when uh, it's to his advantage to try and work condemnation. He starts reminding you about the words of your parents and the words of your pastor of the red block. He's saying, look at you, look at you. And yet look what it says right at the beginning of 1 John. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Oh, so this whole book is being given so that we could be red blockers. Yeah. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the book is being written so that we're red blockers. But if you happen to be a green blocker, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Micah 7, 18 through 19. What a beautiful scripture this is. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. 
He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If you ever end up in the green block, that's your truth. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23, one of my favorite scriptures. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you find yourself in the green block, there's a great scripture for you. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Our God is not a judgment specialist. He's a mercy specialist. And when you end up in the green block, he's not looking to give you judgments, like I think many of us interpret him to, mainly because we grew up in a high standard church and we've convinced ourselves that God desires to give us judgment. It's not that we're not deserving of it. It's that that's not what he's inclined to give. Our God is a merciful God, which means his first inclination is to give us mercy, not judgment. His first inclination is to reach out and say, take my hand. Let's turn what the enemy has meant for evil into good. The incredible mercy, this incredible mercy is the foundation upon which God's grace builds a two-handed Christian. Now get this, this is profound. When you find yourself in the green block and you receive his mercy, you know what he's doing? is he's establishing your maturity. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And when you allow the grace of God to wash you and forgive you, even though you know you're not deserving of it, but he is deserving. He is deserving that you receive his mercy. He is deserving for you to accept his grace. He is deserving. That response in your inner man is actually what is going to grow you up because you're not going to want to hang out in this green block anymore. And so your distaste for the green block increases with every visit to it. And your acceptance of his grace is actually elevating and maturing you in response. Two-handed Christianity. God has given us grace in order that he could make us a two-handed rescuer. Just like he is. Can you think of a better picture of a two-handed rescuer? God wants to make you and me a two-handed rescuer. And that's why he has chosen to give us grace. Now, it might sound contradictory that he would give you grace when you're in the green block. I know, can you understand why I said this should be called the black block? Because that's the way it is for us. And yet, for God, it's a place of new beginning. Right now, we start again right now. It's a springtime in your life. It's not that God brought you there. The enemy has been coaxing you there. But the moment you get there and you awaken by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's time for grace. It's time for mercy right now. Let's respond in truth. Let's receive the grace so that the enemy gets no more laughter out of this. Let's wipe the smile off the enemy's face and let's get our game on. Wherever you're at today, if you're lingering in green block territory, blue block territory, red block territory, there's something you need. Grace. Isn't that interesting that we all need the same thing at every juncture of our life? Sort of like we all need oxygen. Yeah, sort of like that. Whether you're an infant or you're a fully grown, mature Olympic runner, we all need oxygen. And as you learn to receive and accept that oxygen, whatever level of growth you are, you will find that God will grow you up. Father, I pray that you would somehow take this, this very imperfect presentation of the way you work with us and the way you intersect our place of weakness and that you would strengthen the church through it, that there would be no weakening, there would be no justification that it wouldn't sponsor the disobedience, but it would sponsor worship and awe and wonder and obedience. Lord, grow us up to be red blockers, to be those that are fit to carry the name Jesus well, to showcase the grace of God with two hands free, to lean over the side of the ship and bring people in. We love you and we trust you.
Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.